And over the last year, I just felt called to start networking. Um, and I didn't know what that really entailed. I just know that I was supposed to start contacting people, which is not really my nature. I'm, a, I'm very much comfortable in my room reading a book. Uh, thank you very much. But I felt like I was just supposed to start making cold, cold phone calls to people I didn't know, but who I saw got this vision of the kingdom, younger folks. And, um, and so I just kind of started keeping my eyes open and uh, had some other friends kind of keeping their eyes open to younger folks who, had, who got this vision. And I just felt like I was supposed to call them up and say, hi, I'm Greg. <laughs> who are you? And, uh, and start a relationship of sorts. One of the folks that was just off the charts in terms of getting the kingdom is this guy in North Carolina, uh, Jonathan Martin. I read some of his stuff and listened to a few of his messages, and I just saw this guy, he gets the kingdom. It's in his blood. He understands the character of God. Uh, he, he, when he writes, he speaks. He knocks it out of the park. And so I, we developed a phone conversation that grew into a, a Skype conversation. And then recently, about a month ago, he is uh, he's on sabbatical, and he wants to take a vacation. And this is the first time I've ever heard of this happening. Someone in the South wants to take a vacation up to Minnesota in January. <laughs> So I don't know about his sanity, but, uh, you know, I, I can't vouch for that. But I can vouch for his, his uh, uh, kingdom vision. I said, since you're, you and your wife, Manda, are going to be up here, uh, would you like to preach? And um, he graciously said, I'd love to, to do that. And so would you give a warm Wilden Hills welcome to my good friend, Jonathan Martin. Come preach it, man. Thank you, friend. Good morning, Woodland Hills. It is such an honor to be with you. I, I don't even know where to begin to tell you how excited I am to be here. I want to say right out of the gate, and um, I'm not just saying this because he's here. I've said this many times behind his back. Dr. Greg Boyd is one of my favorite preachers and teachers in the world. That should be said. Um, I, know that, uh, I know that you feel blessed to have him, but I also know there's kind of that hometown Nazareth phenomenon. Like, well, he's our pastor. He's around here every week. Um, it, it really is extraordinary the way that Dr. Boyd has shaped um, Kingdom Vision for so many of us, for so many people like me. I was thinking about this this weekend. I think I read my first book of Greg's 15 years ago when I was still in college. I read God at War. It was one of the things that really um, opened my eyes to a whole different way of looking at God and church and scripture and world and culture um, in, in all of Greg's work ever since. So it's a real honor um, for me to be here um, because he is one of the people who most shaped and influenced me. Um, I will say this, like kind of where I come from in my world, uh, Greg Boyd is not just a man. He's not just an ordinary human being. He is a folk legend. <laughs> he is like a, a mythological creature. I mean, there, there are tales out there of how if you take an eyelash from Greg Boyd and you wave it around, hyper-reformed Calvinists will wither in a corner just at the eyelash. There is, there, is a, there is a story about Greg Boyd beating John Piper in arm wrestling using only his pinky. There's all kinds of things out there about Dr. Greg Boyd. But um, it's, it's such an honor now to be able to call him my friend and to get to, to be here with you. And um, I want to share some things with you that have, uh, that have really been on my heart. I'm doing, and this is the only disclaimer I'll give, we'll jump right in. I feel like this is sort of a weird message, especially since you don't know me, uh, but rather than kind of reheating something, I really felt like I just need to share some things that are really coming from the depths of what God is doing in me and what he's been doing, um, even through some, some difficult things in my life through this season, and 
I just really want to share my heart with you this, this morning and hoping because I've heard all about the famous Minnesota nice that even if you think this is a little bit weird, you will still smile politely and nod on occasion <laughs> and make me feel a little bit good. I, I will say, by the way, I really am enjoying being here, even though it's January. Everybody keeps apologizing to me, like, uh, we're so, come back in May or August, I'm telling you. As I understand it, you guys, compared to earlier this week, are basically in a tropical heat wave right now, right? So I feel like I came just in time, all right? Let, let's pray and we'll dive right in. Lord, I have, I'm under no delusions this morning that I'm qualified to do this that I have anything in me that would be of any good for anybody else. I I don't have any delusions that there is anything in myself that your people would need. But I have all the confidence in the world and how much you love him, that I love them, and how much you love your people, and how particular and how specifically and how hand-tailored you want to speak to all of your sons and daughters. I have great confidence in that. Great confidence in your love for them, great confidence in um, your heart for them. And I just simply want to pray more than anything else right now that in this message, in this moment that you've carved out for us, that really we would be able to hear something from your heart, your perspective, your vision, that, that divine other It causes us to be able to see the world and to see our own lives from such a different place. Pray that you would do that, that you would shift our perspective and our vision, and the most of all, Lord, that through this and in this, that we would be able to to feel and see your heart, Christ-like God that we honor and that we worship. We bless you, and we want to just be open to whatever your Spirit has for us now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's how we do it in the South, at least. I want to talk to you these next few minutes a bit about the sea and about the creatures that lie at the bottom of the sea. Since I've been in Minnesota, I've seen a lot of lakes and rivers, I guess. They're all frozen, I suppose, but I see them. I don't know if people in Minnesota go to the beach, and if so, where they go to the beach. But I am a great fan of going to the beach, and I love the sea in general. There's something about the sea that is compelling to us. There's something about the sea that's comforting to us. There's also something about the sea, especially if you get close enough to it, that's terrifying to us. Standing on the beach and looking out over the water, it can just be beautiful. and It has a way of just sort of compelling and drawing us in. On the other hand, once you kind of get into the sea and into the fathomless mysteries of it, the perspective begins to shift just a bit. Um, I do like to go to uh, various beaches, different times in my life when I've traveled. And a few years ago, Amanda and I got a chance to go to Hawaii where we got to go to some of these really like kind of tucked away beaches. My favorite was we went to one that they called Secret Beach. Used to be a nude beach, was not, is not a nude beach anymore. I've not been to any nude beaches yet. Um, I don't know, I'm just, I don't know why I'm telling you this. Not a nude beach anymore, but you had to hike, you know, a, a good ways to get to this very, very private beach. And it was so, so beautiful. It was kind of carved out in the middle of this little cove and there was a lighthouse you could see. Really, really beautiful. And uh, I, I was swimming there. And of course, in Hawaii, you can have these really significant tides, waves, that kind of thing. And I kept getting hit with some of the biggest waves in my entire life. I'm 6'5", 230 pounds. And there were these waves like, that just kept picking me up and throwing me down. 
And every time I would get thrown back to the shore, I would go right back into the water. I don't know what it is about me that likes that so much. Um, true story. I actually, this ended up with me landing on the beach, ultimately with my swim trunks on my head. That actually <laughs> happened. So it was a nude beach, at least for that moment, not by my choosing. You know, it, it, of course, these things can be very dangerous. Um, I, I've had a bad habit in my life at times of swimming alone, which you never really should do. There was one time in particular where I swam out too far. Nobody else was near the beach, and I, I really thought I was going to drown. That was just a couple years ago. So I have a bad habit of this. I, I love the water so much that I can forget to have a certain kind of reverence for it, um, for the fact that there are tides at work, there are other things, there are other creatures out there besides me. One other story from when we were in Hawaii, we were on the north shore of Oahu, around where Lost was found, by the way, for any Lost fanatics. So, you know, it's a very, very wild beach, not a lot of people. And I was out swimming, and while I was out swimming alone, once again, very irresponsible of me, uh, but would be a good way for me to go out, so far as I'm concerned, all of a sudden I was surrounded by these enormous sea turtles. I don't know if there's a more technical name for these kind of turtles than sea turtles. I think there is. I'm just telling y'all biggest turtles I've ever seen in my life. And I was surrounded by them. I don't know if turtles swim in schools. Is that, you know, you said that for fish. For our purposes, it was a school of turtles. And I was right in the middle of them. And I'm telling you, I'm talking like turtles are like this wide. I mean, like these enormous turtles. And you would think, oh, isn't that sweet and beautiful? But I'd been reading about these turtles. And for one thing, I had read that these turtles actually do bite, that sometimes they bite people. And for another thing, I'm telling you, there was just something about it because I wasn't looking for it. Like when the first turtle came up beside me, I just see this reptilian head poking up out of the water. And I just see those eyes. And, you know, if you you ever really paid attention to a turtle, you know, there's something very primal about a giant turtle. You know, it looks like a dinosaur. It looks like something out of a science fiction film. And then I see another reptilian head poking out of the water. And then another reptilian head poking out of the water. And there was something unbelievably creepy about being in the middle of those turtles. For one, these particular turtles, I know now, can live to be up to like 150 or 160 years old. So I'm thinking, not only does this thing look kind of ancient, but this turtle might have like swam with Abraham Lincoln for all I know. Like, it's old enough. This turtle has seen a lot of the world. I don't know if Abraham Lincoln ever made it to Hawaii, but it could have been. And I, just, I was just kind of overcome by this. There's something about um, the, the, the mystery of the sea. Several months ago, I went to see a film. I don't know if anybody else caught this, but Robert Redford did a movie called All is Lost. Really fascinating, elegant, beautiful film. Redford now is 77 years old. He's the only actor in the film. He's very weathered and all that. And the whole movie basically is Robert Redford alone at sea. Um, he gets a hole in this small like boat that he's, that he's on. And so the whole movie is basically watching Robert Redford try to survive alone at sea. Now, I'm watching this in the darkest season of my life and feeling very adrift in many ways. So I kind of had the sense even when I went, it was the middle of the afternoon, I thought, I'm going to watch a metaphor right now because I'm feeling alone and adrift. And, and I'm watching this and there was something about it that was just so, so compelling. It's like the things that I'm seeing on the screen are terrifying. The idea of being alone in the middle of the ocean like this is terrifying. And something about it has a kind of haunting beauty to it as well. My favorite scene in the film, and it would be worth it just for the shot. Told you this is the weirdest sermon you've ever heard, by the way. In case you're like, we'll get to scripture and things like that eventually, I promise. 
there's this amazing shot in the movie where now his boat has sunk. Spoiler alert. He's now on a tiny little raft. And there's this extraordinary shot where the camera pans out. And you see that tiny raft with Robert Redford on it. And as the camera keeps going wider and wider and higher and higher, you see just how small he is in the vast expanse of the ocean. And then there's an even more beautiful shot where you see the same thing from down below. And so the camera pans out and it's going deeper and deeper and deeper. And then you can see like six or eight sharks swimming underneath the raft. Really, really beautiful shot. And yet so scary all at the same time. There, there's just something about the sea. It's, there's something mysterious. There's something romantic. There's something alluring about the sea, but also something very, very dangerous about the sea and the creatures that live underneath it. I've been kind of getting into, for reasons that will be more clear later on, Herman Melville's novel, Moby Dick. And I love all the descriptions of the giant whale in that novel that just describe it's, it's so fierce. It's so other. There's something about it that's kind of monstrous and kind of beautiful. With all that in view, I want us to look at a text from the Psalms. Then we're going to go to Job in a little bit. But from Psalm 104, there's this really remarkable text about the sea monster. Now, keep in mind that in Hebrew mythology, the sea is really significant. Um, All the way back, for example, in the book of Daniel, you might recall that there are these visions of monsters that come up out of the sea. The sea in Hebrew thought is the place of chaos. The sea always represents uh, chaos and disorder. The sea always represents that which we cannot tame or domesticate. The sea always represents those things that we cannot understand. So, for example, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, it talks about how when God's kingdom has come and the earth has been restored to its rightful place, and Jesus is openly ruling as Lord over the cosmos, that there will be no more sea. I used to be depressed when I read that book because I'm kind of like, I love going to the beach. What does God have against the ocean? I don't think the idea is that in the life to come that there will be no oceans, but that there will be no sea, no more sea, no more chaos, no more um, mysteries that are unfathomable that terrify us and haunt us. That's what it's saying. But in the meantime, we live in a world in which there is a sea and there are creatures that live beneath the sea. So Psalm 104, beginning of verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there. Living things, both small and great. There go the ships, and listen to this, and Leviathan that you formed to sport in it. There go the ships in that vast sea. And there goes Leviathan, the creature that you formed to sport in it. Now, I love this verse because Leviathan, you see, is like the ancient sea monster. Sometimes people read about Leviathan and they'll say that basically people were describing an alligator. I don't think Leviathan is like an ancient description of an alligator. As we'll see in an epic poem from from Job in a few minutes, like there's a lot more going on here to me than just like an alligator. There's definitely something kind of mythical about the sea monster, not unlike unlike Greg Boyd and these Paul Bunyan stories about him. There is something mythological about the sea monster, something larger than life, something really extraordinary. 
Uh, Leviathan was like the ancient Loch Ness monster, okay? So there's all this mythology about Leviathan. He's this mysterious creature, this terrifying creature. One more film I'm going to bring up. Um, James Cameron, the director who did films like Aliens and Avatar, so he's in a lot of movies about outer space and space creatures, in more recent years has gotten into oceanography. So this wasn't quite as popular, but he did a film called Aliens of the Deep. And the whole movie is basically just a documentary where they took cameras down lower than anybody's ever been able to go before. And just to see these really strange, beautiful creatures that are lying near the bottom of the ocean. I think it's fascinating that the same director that um, sort of imagines all of these creatures in outer space does a film about the creatures living beneath. Because the creatures that live at the bottom of the ocean are the closest thing we've got to what we would imagine living in outer space. You know what I mean? Like, they're, these are things that you cannot make up. They're that strange. They're that mysterious. They're that beautiful. And in this text, Leviathan is that alien of the deep, that strange other monster that is described as the one who sports where God has created it. You almost get this overture here of Leviathan the sea monster as God's pet. Now, I love that image, and I'm a little bit horrified by that image simultaneously. Because I'm thinking, like, if the sea monster is God's pet... What does that say about God? Like, what kind of God do you have that's able to out-monster the sea monster? Like, what kind of God is that? You can tell a lot about people sometimes, I think, by what kind of pets they have, right? I read this, uh, I read this article not long ago about George Clooney and how he loves dogs. And uh, he had this rescued Cocker Spaniel. It was a fun story. And I thought to myself, like, this is how the world needs George Clooney to be. He's a celebrity, kind of Bruce Wayne in real life. Uh, bachelor. He just seems right. George Clooney sitting at home in his blue jeans with like three or four dogs. It's very Americana, you know? Sometimes you meet somebody and you're kind of like, that's a cat lady right there. Not condescending, like, this is a person that has 14 cats. Like, I have a 10-pound Shih Tzu named Sybil. We have no kids. I just have this tiny dog. People make fun of me everywhere I go because they see this very large, burly man with this very tiny, furry dog, and I get laughed at, and I don't care. Because I love my Shih Tzu. I don't know how y'all feel about that in Minnesota. I love my Shih Tzu. I've got no shame in my sweet little Shih Tzu. I mean, like, I, I walk my dog. It can be really funny. I think that says some things about me. Like, for example, I'm really large and look menacing, but I'm not menacing at all. I'm not really all that strong. I'm not really all that courageous. I am a Shih Tzu person, not a bulldog person. You know what I mean? Like... It would make sense for me to have this enormous dog that looks like it could eat you alive. That's not the kind of person that I am. I just, you know, I'm more at home with my 10-pound shih tzu. So I'm like, what does this mean for God to have the sea monster as a pet? The image in my mind, if anybody remembers Sesame Street, did y'all ever watch Sesame Street in Minnesota? Is that a thing? Do y'all remember how Ernie in his bathtub had the rubber ducky? Do y'all remember the rubber ducky? Now, we're getting ready to go into another epic poem, but here's an epic poem for you right here. Beautiful, elegant, rubber ducky. You're the one. Rubber ducky. You're so much fun, is that how it goes? Rubber ducky, I'm so very fond of you. Y'all remember that epic poem of Ernie's to the rubber ducky? Like, thank you, Pastor Greg. He liked my Ernie thing. Everybody else is kind of like, 
This is how they are in North Carolina. <laughs> this is what the hillbillies are like down there. Yeah, th- this image for me of the ocean is God's bathtub with Leviathan as the rubber ducky. Like there's something really interesting and really haunting about that. I need to move on. I want us to shift gears just a little bit and to look at the sea monster from the book of Job because here's where we're going to get a much more elaborate depiction of this sea creature. And I think it makes sense in a way that you have this primal description of the primal sea monster because I think Job is the Bible's most primal book. Um, It's notoriously hard to nail down the date of Job. It certainly feels very ancient. But there's nothing within the text itself to indicate any kind of context whatsoever. Like, for example, Job is the only book in the Old Testament where there's no explicit reference anywhere to, like, say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is no explicit connection to Israel's history or Israel's tradition. Job is the really universal book in the Old Testament. I mean, the very first book kind of, it almost sounds like once upon a time in a land far, far away. It's like, once upon a time, there is this guy who lived in this town. And there's something very universal about Job. There's something primal, almost primitive about Job. And yet, I think in many ways, it's, it's the most beautiful book in the Bible. So in this very primal book, you get a primal description of this ancient sea monster. But before we get into the sea monster itself, let's set up just a little bit more about this, this book. This book that is so articulate about human suffering. This book that is so articulate about the ways in which we grieve. I know that Job is depicted as a sinless man, but you don't have to be sinless to understand Job or for Job to speak your language. The only thing that qualifies you to understand Job, you don't need to be spiritual to understand Job. You don't have to be a Christian to get what's going on in Job. The only thing you need in order to be able to access Job is pain. And if you've ever experienced any extraordinary pain in your life, Job speaks your language because it's so articulate, it's so eloquent in that basic human language of suffering. That thing that unites us, not only how beautifully we're created, but the fact that we all suffer in varying degrees. And in the book of Job, of course, we've got a man who's suffering. And not only does he suffer because he loses everything that he has. He loses his land. He loses his family. He loses all of his livestock. The worst thing for Job, and not a lot of people pick up on this, but the worst thing for Job, if you really pay attention to what the character of Job actually says, the hardest thing for Job is not what he loses. The hardest thing is that after his loss, his so-called friends who come to bring him comfort ultimately end up blaming Job for everything that's gone wrong. Uh, my, my sort of uh, riff on the book of Job is that Job is not just the book about what happens when the worst case scenario takes place in your life. Job is a little bit worse even than the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario of the worst case scenario is when you lose everything and then the people around you try to explain why. That's worse even the worst case scenario. God bless the... The, the wonderful people who want to help you when you're suffering and speak to you in platitudes. You know what I'm saying? Little girl gets hit by a bus. Well, I'm sure this is somehow part of God's plan. I'm sure somehow he's going to get glory out of this. All these things that we say to people, trying to explain everything. Job's friends are all people who attempt to live righteous lives. 
And they're living in a world, if I can say it like this, more of karma than of grace. What goes around comes around. The people who do good and do right get blessed. The bad guys suffer. And for them, this is a very tightly ordered, very manageable world because their understanding is as long as we do the right things, we're never going to have to suffer. So when they see Job as their friend now suffering, this causes a real quandary for them. There's got to be sin in your life, Job. This must be some form of punishment. Because ultimately, and I think this is often what happens when we attempt to comfort our friends, we're trying to speak comfort to them. We're trying to enter into their situation. But oftentimes it's really more about us than them. Let me say it like this. Job's friends need this to be an account of how Job sinned. Because if it's not Job's fault, that means something bad could happen to them too. And that would disrupt their very tightly ordered world. Is that making any sense? Like so often, the words we try to speak of comfort aren't really to try to help other people sleep better at night. They're to try to help us sleep better at night. We tell them the things that we need to be true so that we can be okay. Job, there must be sin. And if you'll repent, then everything will be all right. And surely somehow this is your fault. This is your fault. There, it, it is so intrinsic to human nature. We see that in the book of Genesis. That when we feel troubled, that when the world feels disordered, the very first thing we do is try to find somebody else to blame. Well, it's their fault. If you wouldn't have said this, if you wouldn't have done this, it becomes so easy to blame. See, what we often do, I promise this is coming back around full circle, is that we create monsters out of the people around us. We try to turn them into the monsters. They're the ones who threaten us. For Job's friends, Job is the Leviathan. Job is the alien. Job is the one who's, he's the one who's messing up everything. Job is the one who is monstrous to them. So they begin to to blame him. Just a footnote here. Do y'all remember, we've had a few stories like this in recent years. Every so often there'll be a terrible tragedy and then some televangelist somewhere is going to get up and say, well, we know why this happened because it was these folks' fault. Oh, we know why this hurricane happened. It was because of the gays. We know why there was this flood. It's because of the abortionist. I've always been a little puzzled by this, you know, because it's interesting. Like, you know, you have hurricanes in Florida, but you never have hurricanes in like Las Vegas. I would think, I mean, Las Vegas is supposed to be like Sin City. So if hurricanes are punishment for sin, why don't we have hurricanes in Sin City? I mean, like, it's kind of like, I think thought hurricanes were caused by things like barometric pressure. But anyway, I don't mean to get off track here. I'm always a little amused and like befuddled by this. We know why there's this tragedy. It's because these people are doing these things that we're not doing. What would make for a much more interesting story is if a televangelist got up and said, Hey, y'all, about Katrina, my bad. I think that one was on me. I think that one was completely my sin. Sorry, guys. Like that would be a really interesting story, but it's much more human to blame somebody else. It's their fault. We need a monster out of the people around us so that we can feel better about ourselves. I really believe what you get in Job is an almost an origin story of everything wrong with religion, everything everything that's wrong with, with bad religion, that religion that's all about blaming the other. And as long as we know who the bad guys are, then we know that we're the good guys and we know that we're going to be okay. That's what happens to Job. And as the story progresses, 
and Job is listening to his friends, what begins to happen is that Job himself begins to feel monstrous. His friends treat him like he's the monster, so he begins to feel monstrous. He begins to feel like he's the one who is the monster. Let's look at a couple texts here real quickly. Um, first, from Job chapter 7. Fascinating verses to me. Job 7, verses 11 and 12. Job says, Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And look at verse 12. Am I the sea? Am I the source of the chaos? Am I the source of the disruption? Am I the monster? Or the dragon that you set a guard over me? See how Job understands the world? A lot of God's job is to police the dragon. A lot of God's job is to put a leash on the monsters. And now he's saying, is that me now? Am I the dragon here? Am I the monstrous one? Am I the one that you're having to set a guard over? Go quickly to Job 9, begin with verse 16. If I summoned him, as in the Lord, if I summoned God and he answered me, I do not believe that he would listen to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not let me get my breath but fills me with bitterness. If it is a contest of strength, he is the strong one. If it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? Job understands that God is the one who crushes the monsters. And now he has this sense that he's going one-on-one with God. He's the one who I know would beat me in any contest. He feels like he's the monster now who is opposing God. But then finally, Job 26, beginning with verse 12. By his power... He stilled the sea. By his understanding, he struck down Rahab. Uh, More language about a sea monster, a, a, a purveyor of chaos. By his wind, the heavens were made fair. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Job is convinced that a lot of what God does is defeat the monsters. He crushes the monsters. So now he feels like, He's the monster. His friends have made him feel monstrous. So I know all God wants to do is crush me. Now, there's a lot of interesting text in the Old Testament about Leviathan. And I feel like the imagery, the symbolism of Leviathan changes depending on the passage. So like there is another passage where, you know, you have like God like at war with the sea monster. I don't think that's what's supposed to be going on here. We get something very different in how God is going to speak about these actual creatures. Laden all the way through the book comes this message where Job keeps saying, am I the monster? Am I the dragon? Am I the one you're going to crush? Am I the one that you're going to oppose? And after Job has spoken and after Job's friends have spoken and after everybody else shuts up, finally God speaks, which is often the way that works. And towards the very end of the book, finally God responds. Have you ever read the speeches of God in the book of Job? Have you paid attention to these texts before? Aren't they strange? And they're really, really strange. But I think they're really beautiful too. I used to interpret the uh, response of God to Job almost like God's angry with Job. Like I thought God's toying with Job here. Because, you know, when God first opens his mouth to begin to speak, <laughs> he, he says a lot of really fun things like, hey, Job, why don't you be a man and gird up your loins? Now I'm going to ask some questions of you. I read that very differently now. I think if you pay really close attention to the speeches of God and Job, there's something playful about them. 
there's something familial about them. There's a, there's a relationship. There's, there's something really playful, almost like God teases Job just a little bit. And after God begins to ask Job some questions, like, Job, I've, I've heard your expert opinion. I've heard what your friends have been saying. Now let me ask you a few things. Were you there when the mountain goats were born? Were you there when the stars of the morning sung for joy? All these beautiful things. But the really strange thing is that after God has spoken for a little bit, then he begins to speak about the sea monster. And in fact, most of what God says and talks about is about Leviathan, the sea monster. Like, how comforting is it when you've been suffering and then God wants to talk to you and he's mostly talking to you about the sea creature. But that's mostly what you get here is God begins to talk about Leviathan. God talks to Job about the wildness of creation and then he talks about the wildest of all those creatures, and that's that's Leviathan. Let's go to that text. This comes from um, Job 41. Now, this is a little bit long, but I think this is a really, really beautiful poem. So, like, hang with this. I really want you to feel the emotion of this text because, I, I don't know, for me, poetically, there's nothing else in the Scripture that quite does for me what this does. Now, this is from the the voice of God in this text. God says, Can you, Job... Draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down its tongue with a cord. Can you put a rope in its nose or pierce its jaw with a hook? Will it make many supplications to you? Will it speak soft words to you? Do you hear that, Job? Would the sea creature whisper soft, sweet nothings in your ear? Would he do that? Will it make a covenant with you to be taken as your servant forever? Will you play with it as with a bird? Or will you put it on a leash for your girls? I especially love that. Job, are you able to bring Leviathan home? Surprise, girls. Sea monster. You can pet it. Will traders bargain over it? Will they divide it up among the merchants? Can you fill it with harpoons? You hear that? Like the sea monster is rumbling even as we speak. (laughs) Special effects in these sermons. Can you fill its skin with harpoons or its head with fishing spears? Lay hands on it. Think of the battle. You will not do it again. Any hope of capturing it will be disappointed. We're not even the gods overwhelmed at the sight of it. No one is so fierce as to dare to stir it up. Who can stand before it? Who can confront it and be safe under the whole heaven? Who? I will not keep silence concerning its limbs or its mighty strength or its splendid frame. Who can strip off its outer garment? Who can penetrate its double coat of mail? Who can open the doors of its face? There is terror all around its teeth. Its back is made of shields in rows, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. It sneezes it's, I love that verse, by the way. It sneezes flash forth light. Wish my sneezes could do that. And its eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. I love that phrase. From its mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap out. That is not an alligator, people. Out of its nostrils come smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. Its breath kindles coals and a flame comes out of its mouth. In its neck abides strength and terror dances before it. The folds of its flesh cling together. It is firmly cast and immovable. Its heart is as hard as stone, as hard as the lower millstone. When it raises itself up, 
The gods are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches it, it does not avail, nor does the spear, the dart, or the javelin. It counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make it flee. Sling stones for it are turned to chaff. Clubs are counted as chaff. It laughs at the rattle of javelins. Its underparts are like sharp potsherds. It spreads itself like a threshing sledge on the mire. It makes the deep pull like a pot. It makes the sea like a pot of ointment. It leaves a shining wake behind it. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth it has no equal, a creature without fear. It surveys everything that is lofty. It is king over all that are proud. We can stop right there. Will someone say amen to the reading of God's word? Anybody just feel like shouting right now? If I had a handheld microphone, I'd just drop in and walk off the stage just to see what would happen. You know what I mean? Like just read about Leviathan and now it makes the sea bowl like a pot. All right. Thank you, Woodland Hills. Take care. Very, very strange text. And yet I think there's so much going on here. See, the trouble with Job's friends is that they want to eliminate all the chaos. And they think if you live righteously enough that you can get rid of the chaos, that you can prevail over the wildness of creation, that you can order your life instead of living in a disordered world. But when God responds, he almost seems to celebrate the wildness of creation. He almost seems to celebrate the fact that the world is given this terrible freedom. And then he begins to celebrate even the freedom of Leviathan. See, here's the interesting thing. In Job, I'm convinced that a lot of what's going on here is that Job's friends are trying to shut out the chaos. They're trying to find somebody to blame for the chaos so they don't have to deal with it. But the fact of the matter is, for Job as it is for us, the chaos is not going anywhere. There really is a sea. There's always been a sea. We didn't know there was a sea until we suffered, but there was a sea before we knew it. It's just that when we begin to suffer, we become aware of it. There is no going back to a time where there was no sea. There is no going back to a time or place where there are no sea monsters. I think people read stuff like this and say, how can you read a book that talks about sea monsters? How can you take seriously scripture that talks about the monsters that live underneath the bed? I've kind of got the opposite perspective these days. Like, How could a religion possibly be useful that doesn't take seriously the monsters that live underneath the bed? Because if you live long enough, you know that there really are monsters out there. There are monstrous things that happen. There are monstrous things that take place. And sometimes the monster seems to really be us. Sometimes we do monstrous things. Sometimes we cause monstrous pain. And the fact of the matter is, there really are things that are lingering down there in the depths that are pretty terrifying. Here's the trick, I think, is that when you're afraid of Leviathan, when you live afraid of the sea and you live afraid of the sea monster, everything that we're afraid of, we empower. Do you hear what I just said? Everything we're afraid of, we grant power over us. I see now how so many different times and ways and seasons in my life where I granted things power over me precisely because I was so afraid. When I watch and hear certain kinds of news 
and people speak very confidently about all the bad guys out there and how simple and black and white everything is and they sound so confident and they sound so bold with all that. Do you know what I hear? I hear the fear underneath all that. We speak that way because we're afraid. We speak that way because we desperately need order and everything that we're afraid of, we grant power over us. So here's what I really want to bring this full circle. The reality is there are monsters that live underneath the deep. And the reality is there are all kinds of things that lurk in the depths, even of ourselves. And the way that we deal with those things, the way that we deal with the pain that lurks underneath, the way that we deal with the, um, uh, with the temptation, the way that we deal with all of the things that, that cause us angst, the way that we deal with all of the despair, the way that we deal with those things that we don't know how to articulate and name is not to push them down deeper. See, we often live under the assumption that all God wants to do is to crush the monsters. If anybody else saw the things in me that feel monstrous, they'd run from me. They'd label me. They'd cast me out. So I have to hide the monsters even from God. What if God doesn't want to crush the monsters, but to make friends with the monsters? What if God wants to put a hook in the monster's nose? What if God's much more comfortable with the chaos than you are? What if God is the one who's able to take a world where there really is a sea and there really is disorder and there really is terror but he wants to bring something beautiful out of all that. See, we have to get to a place, I'm almost out of time. We have to get to a place where we understand that the way that we deal with the monsters is not to grit our teeth and decide to do battle with them. Because I don't know if you read what I did about Leviathan. Swords will not pierce Leviathan. Your javelin won't work. You're not going to be able to conquer the sea monster. In Moby Dick, that's exactly what goes on. Ahab, the captain, gets obsessed with killing this giant whale that cannot be killed. He's trying to defeat that which human beings cannot defeat. And if we grit our teeth and we decide that we're going to try to wrestle down the things that human beings cannot wrestle down, inevitably we live in fear. We live in disappointment. We always feel like we're a disappointment to God. We always feel like we're a disappointment to somebody else. Because you're never going to be able to defeat the sea monster. But here's the thing. The sea monster is too big for us, but it's very small to God. Right? That which creates terror in our hearts is the rubber ducky in God's bathtub. He's not freaked out. He's not terrified. And I'm trying to land the plane, but I feel like the Lord would really have me press on you right now that there's some of you who are keeping things so far down because you think I could never expose that before the presence of the Lord. It's too terrible. He's not the least bit scared. He's not the least bit surprised. He's not the least bit afraid. Don't you know the psalmist says that even the darkness is light to him? There's nothing you have to conceal. There's nothing you have to hold back. What if the monsters in you, the things that you're afraid to let out, the things lurking in darkness, what if God doesn't want to come in and crush and kill and fight? He doesn't want to kill all the monsters. Lord knows he doesn't want to kill you. You're not the monster. What God wants to do is he wants to love all those monsters until he loves the the things that are monstrous out of us. See, that's the thing. You can't kill the monster, but you can Love the monster. Perfect love casts out fear. It's the only thing that works. 
only thing that works. It's what's so strange, I think, for many of us about any kind of growth in a life with God is we think that by sheer willpower, we can like defeat all these things. And that's never how it goes. It's only when we first come to know, here's the God who sees everything about us, knows everything about us, and he loves us anyway. That was the whole testimony of the Samaritan woman. That's the story that turned her city upside down. I'm sorry, I'm just getting preachy right now, but work with me, okay? I've got like two minutes. Like, she, she has this encounter with Jesus, and she doesn't walk away reciting the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. She doesn't know anything about doctrine. All she knows is this. I met a man who told me everything I'd ever done. And you can feel the subtext there. He knew everything I'd ever done. He told me everything I'd ever done. And he wasn't scandalized by it. He wasn't afraid of it. He didn't label me. He didn't reject me. And I simply just want to make the, the, the plea with you right now that I really think what God wants to do for some of us is he wants to bring light down to those depths and all those things that we keep lurking in darkness. I really think the word of the Lord for some of you, there's no reason to live in fear of those things anymore. This is a time, this is a moment in your life to expose everything to the presence of God and let him love you in your depths. Let him love you in the chaos. Let him work in the chaos. You're not going to understand the chaos. You're not going to be able to make sense of it, but he can. And if we learn that we really don't have to wrestle and defeat the sea monsters, that all we need to do is submit to the one who rules over the creatures of our deeps. He'll take care of all the rest. God knows what to do with Leviathan. Amen? I don't know. I don't have to know what to do with Leviathan. God knows how to treat the sea monsters. God knows how to treat everything that lives in the depths. Stand with me if you would. I'm getting real preachy and I'm out of time. There's a quote from Frederick Buechner I dearly love. I'd love to leave you with. Here is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Do not be afraid. Beautiful and terrible things will happen to all of us. But scripture tells us we don't have to be afraid. There's nothing about your sea that God doesn't know about. There's nothing about your sea monsters that God does not know about. And I want us to take just a moment now before we go just to pray. And wherever it is that you need God to bring some light to the depths, why don't you just let him do it? I want to ask our, um, our prayer team folks if you would come to the stage. I'm going to pray over you, but when I'm done, if anybody needs to talk or to, or to pray a bit longer, just know there will be some folks here to pray with you. But, but join me right now. Father... I lift up your sons and daughters, those here at Woodland Hills, those who are listening by podcast, wherever they are, wherever they come from, I lift them up to you. Lift up your sons and your daughters. I bring them into your presence and just say, Lord, look here at all of your children who feel so weak. Look here at your sons and daughters that feel monstrous. Lord, the ones who've been hiding and living in fear of all the things that they can't understand about the world or that they can't understand about themselves. And Lord, I just thank you that even this day that you are calling them up out of the the depths. Or rather, let's say it this way, I really believe you want to enter into those depths. You want to go down to all the dark places. You want to get in all the crevices and all the cracks. Oh, again, I just, Lord, just feel that so strongly in my bones even today that Even the darkness is light to you. So, Lord, we just invite your light. We just invite your love that casts out all fear. 
we invite your love that tames everything that's untamable by us. We invite in your love in the same way that it is through the cross that you accomplish victory over your enemy. We thank you that even now that your love will be victorious over everything that we're facing. It is your love and your love alone, Lord. So I just pray even now that you would release your children from condemnation, that you would release them, Lord, from guilt, that you would release them from that sense that they need to hide from your presence. When you're the only one who can help them, you're the only one who understands, you're the only one who knows and sees everything about them completely, and yet you love them completely. So Lord, I just bring them into your presence, where you can get down into, your, into our depths, where you can tame the monsters, and where finally, Lord, we can find peace knowing that we serve, that we worship the God who rules over all of that that's unfathomable. Deliver us from fear and fill us so much with your love that we really come to know that there is nothing, nothing, nothing in this world, nothing in the world to come, nothing out there, nothing in here that we need to be afraid of because we serve the God who rules over every creature. And we submit to you, and we honor you, and we invite you. Breathe your peace now. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Woodland Hills. It's been such an honor to be with you.